This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, June 20th, 2023. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Anna Pope. This is 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. It was on this day in 1907 that Jimmy Driftwood was born in Timbo in Stone County. His song, The Battle of New Orleans, would win the 1959 Grammy Award for Song of the Year for the version recorded by Johnny Horton. Ahead today on Ozarks at Large, the recently retired superintendent of Fayetteville Public Schools. During his 50-year career, he was a special education teacher, assistant principal, and principal before his term as superintendent. This week, Randy Wilburn, host of the I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast, talks with Dr. John Colbert. First, Pulaski and Saline counties in central Arkansas are currently bracing for impacts of a new state law regulating books found in their libraries. Josie Lenore with our partner station KUAR as part two of her report on efforts to limit access to certain books in Arkansas libraries. A Saline County Library Board meeting last May turned into an emotional debate over relocating certain books available to children and young adults. Act 372 was passed in the Arkansas legislature this year. The law requires books deemed harmful to children to be in a separate restricted section of the library. The law doesn't go into effect until August, but in the meantime, the Saline County Quorum Court is debating an ordinance telling libraries to proactively take steps to relocate certain content. At the next library board meeting, debate ensued over a policy to allow county judges to make relocation decisions. During the meeting, community members and representatives from the Saline County Republicans spoke out against books they found in the young adult section. Here is community member Ann Gardner talking about a sex ed book called Sex is a Funny Word, which is available to minors. On page 151, this book introduces words in big letters, bisexual, gay, lesbian, queer, asexual. If someone wants to view this material over the age of 18, let them if you must, but do not leave it out on display like it's something special. It's not. When speaking against the new policy, former Saline County librarian Jordan Reynolds said she loved working at the library and that books containing LGBTQ themes could bring comfort and acceptance to young members of the community. The resolution is saying that these kids, though they're different than us, they're different than our straight white community, that if they don't find themselves in books, it's because they're immoral, perverse, and disgusting. Kenny Wallace is a community member who regularly live streams library board meetings on the Saline County Republicans Facebook page. He joins many others who believe that relocating books is not the same thing as banning them. Well, the first thing I thought of a gas station. See, so they have beer and cigarettes and they put them in an area that's off limits or, you know, some access. It should be able to do, it should, they should be able to do something similar with books. I totally get that, but beer and cigarettes aren't in the First Amendment. You know, free speech is, um, but of course there are limits to some free speech. There is some court precedent arguing that relocating and banning books are the same thing. Library Director Patty Hector tried to explain her views on this during the board meeting. Relocating is the same as banning. In Saline County, a formal challenge process exists for people wanting to remove a certain book from the library. Anyone challenging a book must first meet with the library director, then fill out a complaint form and present their challenge to a committee. During this entire process, the book stays available in the library. One of the most controversial books of the library is a memoir called All Boys Aren't Blue by George M. Johnson. It contains LGBTQ themes and some descriptions of sexual activities. Hector recently started reading it. It's heartbreaking. It's on the New York bestsellers list. I mean, it won an award in Arkansas, the Charlie May Simon Award, which is why we bought it. We bought every award-winning book. Um, it sat on the shelves for five years. It got read maybe three times until they started challenging it. And now it has so many checks out that checkouts that it won't get weeded. Weeding is the process where out-of-date books or those not being checked out of the library are removed or relocated to the library bookstore. By the time of the May meeting, Hector said none of the mentioned books had been submitted through the formal challenge process. Attorney Brian Metters is currently suing Crawford County over their similar decision to relocate children's books containing LGBTQ themes. He says these book removal and relocation policies are allowing a vocal minority to dictate the materials available to everyone. Because of this particular person doesn't like the book, now everybody is burdened with the additional administrative controls or outright banning, either one, 
that happened as a result of that, and that's known as a heckler's veto. As debate continues, members of the Saline County Republicans have set up billboards adorned with the phrase X-rated library books. The billboard directs onlookers to the website salinelibrary.com, which sounds similar to the official library website, salinecountylibrary.org. The site contains a list of excerpts from so-called X-rated library books, such as It's Perfectly Normal and novels like Melissa and Perks of Being a Wallflower. Last month, a counter billboard was put up which says, Stand with the Library. Hector also says she has received harassment from community members, calling her a pedophile and a groomer. Meanwhile, the Central Arkansas Library System is suing to stop Act 372. Cal's attorney John Adams said the suit will be brought by a diverse group of patrons and supporters, including a 17-year-old high school student. Under the law, librarians who allow minors to access books deemed harmful to children could be held criminally liable. Cal's executive director, Nate Coulter, says it's difficult for librarians to work under these constraints. People live with uncertainty in the law for a while, but if you're living with it as a library employee and there's this criminal sword hanging over you, threat, that uncertainty is, is, is untenable. Coulter and the other members of the Cowles Library Board pushing for the suit say they simply want clarification on which books are harmful to minors and want to protect librarians from facing criminal penalties. In an email, Coulter called Act 372 a horrible bill reflecting an impulse to censor books. Alexis Sims was the one Cal's board member to vote no on moving forward with the lawsuit. I mean, I remember as a child going to Hastings, which, rest in peace, it's gone, uh, Playboy had black across the cover. I mean, that's covering up the obscene or moving it out of the purview or the, the view of minors. At Cal's, a child must be 11 to be in the library by themselves, but Sims is reiterating a concern held by those who support the policies. She says many children come to the library alone after school and wants to prevent them from stumbling upon offensive material. Does the library, I don't think they have that available, but there is obscene material. There are books that are marketed towards young adults and in the young adult section that explicitly detail sexual acts and um, obscene things. Librarians across the state say there is no obscenity in public libraries. Attorney Brian Metters explains obscenity is a legal term which only applies to a small amount of content which is beyond the pale. Standard. There's a legal standard for obscenity and it's like really strong. Like we're not talking about like playboys or hustlers or things of that nature. Back in Saline County, Patty Hector says challenges to books will not stop her from moving forward. We represent everyone in this community. Yeah, personal ethics, professional ethics. I'm not going to let somebody who disagrees um, and won't even come talk to me or turn in a reconsideration of material form about a book that they have a problem with, dictate what I do in my library. In Little Rock, I'm Josie Lenora. Josie's first report in the series was on yesterday's Ozarks. You can find it, it was about Crawford County, by going to ozarksatlarge.com and looking for yesterday's show. And you can keep up with everything we do here by subscribing to our free newsletter. It lists all of our stories and provides instant free access to each story and interview. You can sign up right now at KUAF.com. Northwest Arkansas Pride returns June 23rd through the 25th for its 19th annual Parade and Festival. Other weekend events include the third annual Trans March, Glitterville with drag superstar Diabetti, and the High Tea Pool Party at Mount Sequoia. Information at nwapride.org or NWA Equality's Facebook or Instagram. The Momentary in Benville presents Grammy Award-winning country band Brothers Osborne, Saturday, July 15th, live outdoors on the Momentary Green. This concert is part of the Momentary's Live on the Green concert series. Brothers Osborne tickets on sale now at themomentary.org. Later this hour, if you wanted to learn to mountain bike or improve your mountain biking skills, why not get advice from an Olympian? Retired professional mountain biker and two-time U.S. Olympian Leah Davison will be in Bentonville later this year for the next Sunset Summit, sponsored by the Women of Oz. We'll talk to her about a summit for women interested in mountain biking and whether biking uphill is more enjoyable than going downhill. That's in about seven minutes. For a year now, the KUAF Lunch Hour has been bringing you the best in local music and local food once a month here at the KUAF studios. 
Now we're taking it on the road. KUAF is partnering with local McDonald's owner-operators to bring you the KUAF Lunch Hour Summer Concert Series. It begins in late July and will include three tiny desk-style concerts that will take place at different McDonald's locations across northwest Arkansas, the River Valley, and the Green Country. These three concerts will lead up to a mini-festival called Lunch All Day in September. Performances are set to include Steph Simon of Fire in Little Africa, country singer Joe West, and artist-designer Tylo May. Get ready for a summer of fun, music, and great food. The KUAF Lunch Hour Summer Concert Series, sponsored by McDonald's, begins July 28th. Keep listening to KUAF, your public radio station, for more details. Arkansas's unemployment rate is at another record low. The rate for May was 2.7%, a drop from the previous month's 2.8. Talk Business and Politics reports more than 1.3 million people are employed in the state, and the May number of jobs increased by more than 16,000. There were just more than 37,000 unemployed Arkansans in May 2023. That's far fewer than the 137,000 unemployed Arkansans in May 2020 at the height of the pandemic shutdown. An attorney challenging Arkansas's most recent congressional redistricting is accusing lawmakers of racial discrimination and redrawing the state's district lines. Richard Mays is representing plaintiffs who argue the boundaries exclude from the state's second congressional district roughly 22,000 black voters in Pulaski County. Speaking on Arkansas PBS this weekend, Mays says the U.S. Supreme Court made a similar argument in an Alabama case contradicting a ruling by a federal appeals court. We contend they used the wrong standard. They claim that we had to prove uh, the intent of all of the legislature was to discriminate against these black people. The law says, the voting rights law says, that it's the effect that you look at, not the intention of the legislature. The high court ultimately could require Arkansas lawmakers to redraw district lines or draw the districts themselves. May says he would like to see the legislature reconsider their redistricting plan before they're forced to do so. I think that the legislature would be well advised to reconsider their map because I I think that there is no explanation for what they did other than racial discrimination. It may have also had political considerations as well, but you can't just take 22,000 black people out of an area and say that it doesn't have racial overtones. In a statement, Attorney General Tim Griffin said the recent Supreme Court decision has no effect on any ongoing redistricting litigation in Arkansas. Both the state and plaintiffs have roughly two months to file briefs with the high court, which could take months to decide whether to hear the case. Land is being donated for a potential Fort Smith Children's Museum. This weekend it was announced the Robbie Westfall family will contribute more than five and a half acres along the Arkansas River for a possible museum. The land is close to the U.S. Marshals Museum, which is scheduled to open July 1st. Today is World Refugee Day. The most recent data from the United Nations Refugee Agency shows that nearly 110 million people are displaced or seeking asylum from crisis and disasters around the world. That is the highest number of refugees since World War II. Joanna Krause, executive director of Arkansas's only resettlement agency, Canopy NWA, says since 2016, the organization has resettled more than 500 people, with the U.S. evacuation of Afghanistan in 2021, bringing in the most refugees at one time for the organization. Canopy and all refugee resettlement agencies were never designed to to do crisis response. And that's what happened during the evacuation of almost 80,000 Afghans. It was a tremendously emotional, difficult, logistically difficult period. Um, we would receive notice. The shortest time frame that we got was notice on a Sunday that someone, a family was arriving up mon- on Monday and we had to be at the airport. So our staff have worked incredibly, incredibly hard to meet the need and respond to this humanitarian crisis. She says the agency is set to welcome 150 individuals in 2023. Canopy is marking World Refugee Day with an open house this afternoon from 4 to 6 p.m. at their office in Fayetteville. We would love to invite the community to join us on June 20th, which is World Refugee Day, to celebrate and honor our refugee community members. 
come try some delicious snacks representing some of the different cultures of folks we serve, meet the staff. We're located um, off of Weddington, off of exit 64. For more information about today's event, you can visit Canopy NWA on Facebook or Instagram. And the 78th annual Rodeo of the Ozarks will open tomorrow in Springdale. Events and theme nights continue through Saturday at Parsons Stadium near downtown Springdale. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Anna Pope. I'm Kyle Kellums. It's the last full day of spring, but we're already thinking, if just for about nine minutes, about autumn. The second annual Women of Oz Sunset Summit fundraiser is scheduled for September in Bentonville. The all-women mountain biking event is a three-day weekend designed to break down barriers for women in cycling. There will be a group rides, clinics, and discussions led by professional cyclists and coaches. Among the speakers and coaches in Bentonville later this year, Anita Nadu, the first professional mountain biker of Indian heritage, Lindsay Richter, the founder of Ladies All Ride and a past participant in the TV show Survivor, and Leah Davison, a two-time U.S. Olympian in mountain biking. Last week, I reached Leah by Zoom at her home in Vermont. Leah and her sister began mountain biking in their teens, and she says she's never wanted to stop spreading the word about the sport. I mean, I really feel like it's my mission here on earth to empower women. So the Sunset Summit was an obvious fit for me because this is an all women's uh, mountain bike festival where I could come in and coach and lead clinics and also uh, speak to these women. So I'm very excited to join in September. Mountain biking is one of those uh, activities that I think for some people, men or women, can feel intimidating. The, yeah. the tools, <laughs> the terms, and just the, the you know, the perceived uh, level of difficulty getting going. Is that something that's addressed at the summit? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this Sunset Summit is about breaking down the barriers for women to enter the sport of mountain biking. So um, we, are, we have clinics and workshops for all levels, and it's absolutely being addressed. I mean, we want these women to come into the sport, to feel welcome, and then also to build confidence. What are some of the barriers that might exist for women that might not exist for most men? Um, I, I think we're getting into a society question there, you know, like uh, you can show up often to a group ride um, and you know, you can be the only women, that woman there, that's changing, I feel like. I mean, I've been in the sport of mountain biking for over 20 years now. And at the beginning, in my entry into the sport, it was only my sister and I on a team of 20 junior men. So that's really a metaphor for the sport of mountain biking. That's why we founded an all-girls mentoring on mountain bikes program called Little Bellas, which has a chapter in Bentonville. And that's still, you know, this, the need is still there to create an all-female inclusive space because sometimes it can feel like a little bit of a hammer fest, um, a little bit intimidating. You know, you don't belong maybe if you don't have a mustache and drink an IPA and wear a, a flannel shirt. And um, we're changing that uh, with with events like the Sunset Summit. So it's very exciting. What levels of experience or talent do you think you'll see at the summit? I think a, hopefully a broad range of of levels. You know, I I wish to like lead an expert uh, clinic. You know, and also I would love to lead a workshop. For beginners, like, hey, here's where the brakes are. Here's how you stand on the bike. Here's how you pedal. So uh, hopefully we get a, a vast um, spectrum of ability. You and your sisters began when you were young. I think there can be a perception, again, mountain biking is something that should be started when you're young. I, I have images of broken collarbones or, or something oh, like that. Should that be dispelled? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we didn't get into the sport of mountain biking until we were 18 years old. So, so definitely not young. Um, and I think it's never too late to start 
start a sport. So at any age and mountain biking is nice because, you know, you can do it on the double track. You can do it on a dirt road and kind of work your way into riding the more classic, like single track, which can be intimidating, but there's definitely a, you know, a progression that you can follow to get into the sport of mountain biking that feels safe and accessible. You mentioned that you and sister, your sister, when you started, you were on this team with just men. Um, I wonder, was there an experience for either of you that began to feel okay and maybe, you know, translated into some empowerment? Um, Oh, that's a great question. I think for us, we had each other, thank goodness. And so we were, you know, we made a great team and it kind of helped dispel some a lot of that male energy that was there at the beginning of the sport. And, you know, we were on a great team that was, um, we learned a lot from the guys and, and the women, you know, throughout my career. So, uh, I I think mountain biking inherently is an empowering sport. I mean, you're literally getting over obstacles, you know, you're riding your bike over obstacles. So that translates those same, that same skill set that you build to get over an obstacle on a bike is the same skill set that you can use to get over obstacles in life and, and develop resilience, you know, picking yourself back up again after a crash, it, it all translates very directly to life. That's why I think it's such a great sport to get people into. You're a competitor, an Olympian, so there's there's that intensity in in your career. Uh, yeah. There, there's also obviously attention required when you're in this competition. I mean, it is fast. It can be difficult. I wonder if mountain biking can also be meditative, or or does it require a certain level of attention that you can't zone out too much. Well, that's the great thing about mountain biking. I mean, I it requires you to be in the now, in the present moment. And I think there's nothing better to, to meditate, really, and unplug from the world that's around you. Plus, when you're outside, uh, it just, you can oftentimes get that feeling of awe, feeling small. And I think that I always feel better after I go for a bike ride. You know, it kind of, puts everything, puts life into perspective. So um, for me, it's a great tool for mental well-being. And yeah, it's definitely my meditation. If someone is interested in mountain biking, how, how much should one expect to spend to do so? I know that, you know, golf can carry a price tag, fly fishing, things like that. Yeah. There can be this assumption that I just can't afford to do this. Yeah. Um, that's a great question. I say any bike that has two wheels is a great bike and you can have a great time on it. So you, you know, there are a lot of, um, used, but great used bikes out there that will come with a more affordable price point, you know, when you're starting to get into the sport, um, you know, they're online, you can go to a bike shop, Uh, There might be bike share programs in your local area. So there's a lot of resources out there, um, bike recycle places, where they provide um, an easier path to get into the sport. What's your favorite weather for for riding? Ooh, uh, sunshine, (laughs) a bluebird day. You know, but I say any day on a bike is is a great day. So I will brave the elements to go out there and... I have retired from competitive racing after a 20-year career, and so that required me to get out and train in all different types mm. of weather. So I now I maybe choose another, another activity if it's raining out, because I don't need to do that. What's better, pedaling uphill or going downhill? Ooh, I mean, going downhill. <laughs> but what goes up must come down. <laughs> See, I, I would pick uphill. I'm scared of going downhill. Really? Yeah, because, you know, downhill involves speed, and yeah, that can be intimidating. Well, you need a progression. 
a skills progression to get you used to the downhills more. Having fun. Leah Davison is a two-time U.S. Olympian and will be one of the speakers at the Women of Oz Sunset Summit in Bentonville, September 15th through the 17th. Early bird tickets on sale through July 1st. The website, wozsunsetsummit.com. We spoke last week on Zoom. Kids Day at the Fayetteville Farmer's Market will take place 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Tuesday, June 20th. Spaces with special activities for kids plus Tuesday market vendors will be there. A limited number of kids' bucks will be available for children to use that day for market products while supplies last. More information at FayettevilleFarmersMarket.org. The Botanical Garden of the Ozarks is hosting its family-friendly summer series, Terrific Tuesday Nights, every Tuesday from June through August from 5 to 8.30 p.m. This series allows the Northwest Arkansas community to experience the garden on beautiful summer evenings free of charge. Entertainment and activities will be planned each week. More information available at bgozarks.org. Each week, the I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast, hosted and produced by our colleague Randy Wilburn, begins with Randy asking his guests to tell him about their superhero origin story to set the stage for the conversation that follows. This week, Randy's guest on the podcast is the former superintendent of Fayetteville Public Schools, Dr. John Colbert. Colbert's career as an educator lasted more than 50 years. He was a special education teacher, an assistant principal, and the first African-American principal in the Fayetteville Public School District. Earlier this month, the ribbon was cut on the district's newest school, the John L. Colbert Middle School. Earlier this spring, Randy invited him, when he was in his last few weeks as superintendent, to come to the Furman Garner Performance Studio at KUAF to talk about his career. You can hear the entire conversation on this week's I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast, wherever you get your podcast, or at IamNorthwestArkansas.com. But we're sharing Dr. Colbert's superhero origin story right now. My journey began a long time ago, even before I got to Fayetteville as being an educator. I am from a small town called Rondo, Arkansas. My parents, Mr. and Mrs. Elsie Colbert, was uh, raised in a family with love and caring. And we had, there were 10 of us. Wow. There were six boys and four girls. And so I was number six. So it was as though I was raised with two families because I was the baby of that first group. And then I became the head honcho of the second group. So it was almost like I was never in a big family. It was always small. You know, we had, I grew up with the older kids and then I was grew up with the young ones. So it was kind of neat to be in the middle and to see both groups uh, grow up and, and how your parents actually treated them differently. Yeah. You know, when they had the first one strict and all that good stuff, <laughs> and the, the ones came after me and said, wait a minute, Dad, y'all didn't let us do all that stuff. So, so it was kind of fun in wow, that sense. Yeah, that's right. awesome. And so you yeah. were like a bridge between almost generations Yes, exactly. Siblings. Yes, right. Wow, that's so exciting. So it was, it was kind of neat. So it was, a, it was a great time. We grew up and and I had fun, and mom and dad just took care of us and told us, hey, the top thing is that you need to make sure you get a good education mm -hmm. and make sure, you know, you follow the rules. You know, I've always been a rule follower all my life and trying to make sure I did the right thing because that's what I was taught. And then, of course, you know, we were raised in the church. I told someone the other day, I went back to visit my 94-year-old mother who's still living. Oh, wow. And we went to church. And I said, you know, back in the day, we used to go to church and stay there all day long. So when I went back this past weekend prior to spring break, we stayed in church like we used to from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. Oh, man. But we had a great time. So um, uh, it was just brought back a lot of memories yeah. because that's the way we were brought up. Hey, you have to be in church on Sunday. That's right. And then I had a friend who texted us this coming Sunday and said, hey, man, I can't be at church. I've been going here and there. I said, well, my parent would say, no matter what you did that weekend yeah. before Sunday, you're going to be in church. church. So after all of my traveling during spring break, I did lived up to that. I was right in church with them and stayed from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. So it's great. But that's just the way it was, you know. Yeah. And then after that, you know, raising us, making sure that we were guard-fearing people and making sure that we got a good education. And, I, you know, I went to, I was one of the, what we call the black sheep of the family. Everybody else <laughs> went to Mariana Public Schools, but I asked mom and dad to let me go ahead and, and go to Barden. And so they did. And at Why Bar was that? Oh, it, I don't know. It just, it had a little special connotation. Barden was like a little I was like a little private, a little special school, and I always thought I was a little special. <laughs> <laughs> and so they agreed to let me do that. And so 
And then, which led me to the educational piece. And of course, when I was there, I was involved with all the organization. I was the vice president of the student council. And so, you know, normally the vice president always did a special project. And my thing, for some reason, I, I just love helping people. And so I started a tutorial program okay. in high school when I was a junior as the student council president. And so, and, and all the kids really love that and all that. And I did too. And so I said, well, I sort of like that. And so, you know, what's this leading to now, my, that tutorial program, helping kids, teaching kids. And then what really put the icing on the cake, my superintendent called me over the intercom in Mrs. Burke's English class and says, uh, Mrs. Burke, may I see John L. Colbert in my office? Of course, what did the other classmate do? Oh, trouble. <laughs> right. I said, the superintendent is calling me, Mr. Aubrey, and why are you calling me to the office? You know, she says, John, I'll go ahead and go to the office and see Mr. Aubrey. And so I did. Now, this is the superintendent, not even the principal, but the superintendent knew me. And all. so I said, wow, what is this about? So I go in there and we sit down. He started talking to me and says, hey, John L., you know, you this role model. Kids look up to you and all that stuff. You're a good student. I said, oh, yeah, that sounds good. Keep coming. <laughs> and he kept, you know, making me feel so good and all the good things about what I do and good students follow rules and all that stuff. And I said, thank you, Mr. Aubrey. And he says, I have a favor of you. I said, you have a favor? You, you want me to do a favor for you? He says, yes, I do. And I said, sure, you know, I'm a compliant person. Whatever adults ask you to do, I normally do it. He says, I want you to be a bus driver. I say, a bus driver, Mr. Aubrey? And he says, yeah, because, you know, you're a model student. Kids look up to you. They always follow the rules. Anytime you do that, you have this great tutorial program. They love you. And that's it. And so I said, sure, Mr. Aubrey, and I would love to be a bus driver. And you so, had your license at this point, uh, Yes, right? I had my license. Okay, now. We, right. we didn't have a CDL now. Okay, that right, wasn't right. required. That was, yeah. But I did have li a okay. license because I used to drive my little convertible. You know, I used to be the big talk of the uh, city <laughs> because of my convertible. <laughs> so he asked me to do that. And so as a person, I said, yes, I would do that for you, Mr. Aubrey. And he says, great. And so I drove a school bus as a junior in high school Wow! because someone saw me doing the right thing, helping other people sure. and helping the kids. And I did that for a year. And guess what? I did not have a single problem out of those kids. He was right. <laughs> they all looked up to me. Sure. You know, I was 17 yeah, year old kids. And these little kids all looked up to me and all that stuff. And so all of that, you know, being a bus driver, listening to kids really listen to me, follow the rules and all that stuff. And then that tutorial program, guess what I decided to do after I graduated? Become a teacher. Become a teacher. <laughs> so that laid the foundation. It was a fait accompli. I mean, it just, right. you, you were I just knew, set up for yeah, that. I knew what I wanted to do. And I knew that I wanted to be a special teacher, okay. a special ed teacher. Because remember, my tutorial program was helping those kids who had academic problems. So, and they really responded to me. Because, you know, I made it very interactive, even when as a, you know, a junior high school kid over the tutorial program. So I, I really love that. And so when I got ready to graduate and my mom said, okay, John, what are you going to, I said, I want to be a teacher. She said, really? I said, yes, yeah, I do. And so of course they always supported everything that we did. So I decided to become a teacher. Then I had to decide on where would I go to college. And so lo and behold, we had Mr. Duffy. He was a recruiter from the University of Arkansas. Okay. And he came to Barding and recruited me and said, hey, man, you know, I read your background and all that stuff. I think you would be a great student at the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville. I said, Fayetteville? <laughs> now, you tell me where that is because you know, at that time we didn't right. know. Yes. And so he said, sure. You should come up there and all that stuff. You'll love it and all. And I said, okay, I'll try it. I went and came here. I came here 50 years ago. Wow. A summer right after I graduated from high school. high school. So this coming June, it'll be 50 years that so I you, came you here. I lived here more, longer than I did back home. Right. Yeah. Wow. So you graduated high school in, in 1973. Three, 1973. Wow. Okay. Yeah. 50 okay. years ago. That's exciting. Yeah. I came here and I told you I wanted to major in special education and I did. And then, of course, you know, during that time, I was acting Pledge Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity sure. and was very involved there. And then I did all that during college because I, I feel like you need to be involved. My parents always say, hey, you would stay out of trouble if you're involved with some type of organization who's really making a difference. And Alpha was doing that. And so, hey, I said, that's me. Yeah. Giving back, volunteering for the community and all that stuff. So I joined the uh, fraternity Alpha Phi Alpha and then 
I was studious because, you know, I told the brothers, hey, I'm here to get an education. Right. And so I did. I did that in three years and graduated. And then after three years, I had to make a decision because I had, you know, different people recruiting me to come to their district. And one was in Dallas and one was in Georgia. Then one was here in Fayetteville. And so I had to say, oh, my God. I need to make a decision here. Should I go to the big city where the big lights are? Or should I stay in a small? Remember, Fayetteville was small. Small back then. I, yeah, 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 50 yeah. years ago. So I made a decision. I said, I think I'm going to stay here in Fayetteville. Mr. Knight was the principal Okay, uh, and invited me and, and said, hey, and to an interview. And he liked what I had to say. And I said, hey, I'd like to uh, offer you a special education class. And I said, sure, I'll take it. So that was the best decision I made uh, 50 years, uh, well, that was 47 years ago when I accepted that position. And so I, I started teaching special ed. And, and like I said, even with when I was a junior in high school doing that tutorial, program, I was very interactive with my kids. I wanted to engage them. Sure. And I did all those good things with my special ed students. They were fifth and sixth grade students. And so my other team members, five great uh, white uh, females, teachers uh, in the fifth and sixth grade wing, and they saw me doing all these great things and kids responding and doing great. And guess what they said? Told Mr. Knight, we want him to be part of our team (laughs) (laughs) so that we can do the same thing. And I tell them the only way I would join the team, I must make sure that I have my kids to be integrated integration back in that time with special ed, you know, and I felt that that was great that we was going to make sure all the kids rotated and they were part of the regular classroom teachers. Right. And so that, that was a big hit back in the day. And they agreed to that. And I must say, Mrs. Pennington, Mrs. Briggs, Mrs. Cleveland, Mrs. Lockhart, they took me under their wings and really helped me through that journey. I would always credit them for being good role models because they were strong teachers. They yeah. didn't take any mess from anybody. Right, right. And so I, I practiced some of those little skills that they had. And so, and, and I felt that, hey, that really helped me to become a great teacher, which I thought I was anyway, but it just helped solidify that thought that I had that I can do this. Yeah. They believe in me. My principal believed in me. And so from that, you know, I did a lot of um, substitution for the principal when it was out. I was the unofficial assistant principal <laughs> that didn't get paid. <laughs> and so uh, and that's because he saw me and knows what's happening. That's a trend. Superintendent watch me. So I tell kids all the time, always remember someone's always watching you. Always. Always. Always watching. Yeah. So my superintendent saw what I did and he invited me to be that bus driver. And then I come and get this job. Bates Elementary, my principal saw all the great things I was doing, how related to everyone, regardless who you were. He saw that. And so he felt that I would be a good lead assistant, unpaid uh, person to fill in when he wasn't there. And so I did that. Loved it. Loved my kids. Loved my fellow teachers and all. And parents were great at Bates Elementary. And then another great thing happened to me during the time when I was being that unofficial unpaid assistant principal, a person by the name of Pat Jackson. Notice I remember all these names from 47 years ago. Yeah, you're good, good with names. <laughs> because That's awesome. they, made, they made a difference in my life. Sure, That's the sure, reason why. Sure. And so Pat Jackson came as an intern in HR. She did her internship at uh, Bates, you know, working with the principal and, and also worked with me as the unofficial assistant principal. And then we had a great time and all that stuff. And the year passed and Pat left and got a job in Fort Smith. And then a, um, a principalship came open at, in Fort Smith. Guess who Pat called? You. Me. Yeah. Why? Again, she what? Saw me in action. Yeah. And absolutely. she was watching me. So my message to everybody, don't forget people are watching you daily. Yeah. And that can make a difference in your life. Dr. John L. Colbert is the just retired superintendent of Fayetteville Public Schools. He talked with Randy Wilburn, the host and producer of I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast earlier this spring at the Carver Center for Public Radio. You can hear the rest of the conversation on this week's episode of the podcast available at IamNorthwestArkansas.com or by downloading through any major podcast distributor. Hey, it's A. Martinez from Morning Edition. And I'm your local host, Daniel Carruth. Summer brings barbecues, vacations, and that might mean a break from your normal routine. But even if your days look and feel different this time of year, NPR and KUAF are still here to keep you in the know. Join me every weekday from 5 to 9 a.m. all summer long. You can hear Morning Edition tomorrow and every weekday from 5 to 9 a.m. on KUAF. Several years ago, Chris Engholm canoed the White River. And as a result, 
created an art and storytelling exhibition titled White River Memoirs that included artifacts and oral histories of how the river was before dams changed its trajectory and nature. And that trip has served as further inspiration. Albert's houseboat that night. The men are snoring, Albert asleep in his chair. On his cot, Matthew is having a nightmare. A phone rings while a river nymph, in the form of the blonde girl from the beach, floats through the houseboat draped with hyacinth blossoms. That's a sample of the seventh episode of the upcoming audio drama, Big Woods and the Golden Beam. It was recorded with professional actors in the new recording studios at the Fayetteville Public Library. Last week, Chris came to our studio. It all started for me when I did the canoe trip down the White River and I did the exhibition White River Memoirs. I had produced with Alan Lord, we did a oral history uh, that we actually published. This is when she was at the Shiloh Museum of Ozark History. Uh-huh. And she's still a partner in crime and she's involved with this project. And we published this uh, spoken history. And so just recently I, I started going back through that and I realized, wow, there is so much golden memories in here. I've got to do something with it. So that was, that's where this project started. So how did you determine who the characters would be? Uh, they just jumped out at me. <clears throat> and they were, when I did the project, you know, I paddled down the river and I'd, I'd, I'd go to places like Augusta or Desarc and Duval's Bluff. And one contact after another would lead me to the old river rat, you know, and he would start talking and they really wanted to tell their story because these people were in their mid to late 80s at the time and so suddenly this guy would show up with a little tape recorder and from California I mean I had just arrived here 10 years ago and uh, they were just delighted to have someone come around and want to hear what the river was like and so it was like turning on the play button and I, I took down 20 30 pages uh, for each person uh, most of the time. And uh, there was a couple of people, uh, a gentleman who was a, uh, a shell, a sheller back then. He's <clears throat> a fisherman, and he had just caught, go ahead. A sheller. Right. He was uh, a mussel sheller. Okay. They used to collect mussel shells and make buttons out of them. There's a bunch of button factories along the river. But he was a fisherman as well, and he had just caught his record-sized catfish, 56 pounds, but it had hurt his back, and so he had had an x-ray. And he started this whole story about what they discovered when they did the x-ray, and it became a very <clears throat> poignant and sad story, but it got me back there for three or four more interviews uh, to capture what he had to say before he did ultimately pass away. But uh, it was sad but and poignant, but I'm so happy that I got back there, you know, got that on paper. So these interviews and these experiences you had uh, on on that trip, how did they find themselves into this? Through a graduate seminar class that I took over at U of A. It was uh, English department and uh, just uh, good fortune. The class uh, required you to do a big project, a literary project. So I pitched this project to the professor and she said, yeah, that sounds that sounds great. So 139 pages later, I had this, this script built using a lot of these characters, but also I had to fictionalize and I had to go back and research 1972, put the times together. And I didn't want to write a, uh, an environmental disaster. I wanted to write something with some, some comedy, a situation comedy. So uh, anyway, she green-lighted it, liked it when I was finished and said, it needs a lot more work, but you know, it, it's got real value and uh, good luck. So about a year later, I had a new version of it. And then I decided, let's bring in some actors and actually read this thing. Because I originally wrote it for the stage. And the actors I brought in turned out to be really experienced, talented people. And including people like Mike Stutz and David Wright and just a whole galaxy of people who came in. And we'd have these Q&A sessions after the reading. And they would just lay into it, you know, and, and set me straight. And so I'd go off and rewrite for a month, come back, we'd do the same thing. So it was an evolution working with these kind of people. And the, you know, the result is we've got something that's nine episodes now. All the characters are really developed because the actors uh, contributed so much. This is a unique form of, of storytelling, I think. 
I think it is. It's sort of like the old radio show, but you also have this, this script where the description in the script is read as well. So you don't have to have instant drama in the, in the dialogue. You can, you can set it up with some, some narration. They can run a dialogue, and then you can conclude that I added music to kind of divide things up. And sound effects. I mean, I love running around and getting the sound effects. And uh, luckily, they were putting in a new sewer system right across from my property at the time. So I got all this, the sounds of dredging equipment <laughs> and heavy loading. And so all that is, is filtered into the, as the sound effects of the Army Corps coming in and, and dredging the river. You put this together through the Fayetteville Public Library. Yeah, I mean, just pure luck, the Innovation Center opened up right as we were looking around for studio space. And uh, we needed, we had actors coming in from outside, most of them are, are local, but uh, we needed a place. And so I went over there and I said, you know, what it's gonna cost me to reserve some studio space here. And they said, well, do you have a library card? And that was it. And, you know, we just started reserving time and they made more time for us as needed. But the podcast booth, the main studio there, it's just, it's, it's state of the art and fun to be there. Great people helped us out there. So how, yeah, l l explain how it would work. You and the actors would show up and you would, at your assigned time, well, have the studio reserved? One month ago, we had actors arrive here uh, for a whole weekend and we recorded straight for three or four days. So I had pre-reserved time in, in all sorts of different rooms over there because we had some rehearsal and then we'd go to the podcast room. And then we had these, there's a lot of um, group singing and interactive stuff and so we had to have the large studio for that so it, it took a lot of coordination but uh, luckily we got everybody recorded without very much missing at all there's a few lines that had to be redone but you know so many actors now have these home systems where they're doing voice acting professionally from home mm -hmm. so I can just email them say I know this line 89 I need that again <laughs> you know, so, so it's been really pretty fluid did you also edit and put it all together over there I didn't that takes so many hours uh, there's a limit on how many hours you can you can have at the public library. So luckily, I have a, a home system. And so for the last 30 days, I don't think I've left my woodshed. <laughs> Let's talk about the rivers. Because the last time you and I talked was about the White River canoeing right. down there. And I think I mentioned at the time, and I want to bring it up again, a lot of us who grew up or live in North Arkansas think of the White River one way, mm -hmm. right? It's dammed. Yeah. You, you've got bull shoals. You've got beaver. But as it flows on down through Arkansas, it becomes something different. It does. I mean, it starts here. The headwaters are up in near Pettigrew. You can go up and visit those. It starts in a little roadside gutter, and you can see where the, the, the ice forms in the winter and where the river actually starts. But it forks off, and it, it basically runs for 700 miles before it gets to the Mississippi River. But after Batesville, the river changes uh, just incredibly because it comes out of the Ozarks, comes into the Delta, and what used to be the big woods isn't there anymore. You used to have hardwood forests, literally 10 million acres of them. And they were removed from 1950 to 1975 or so uh, to allow farmers to plant corn and rice and soy. So <clears throat> the environment changes radically, and the amount of, of chemical runoff mm -hmm. gets intense. And so the, the river uh, has a lot of issues, and the Army Corps has uh, manipulated the river a lot over the years, dredging. It's a commercial river there, a lot of barge transportation, this sort of thing. And so a story like the Buffalo River is a fabulous story of people organizing and, and saving a river. But the story that gets kind of overlooked is the same thing happened there in the same year. Uh, and That's we, right. It was, it was yeah. virtually the same time. And they had their hero. They had Rex Hancock. We a dentist. A dentist. Yeah. Yeah. And he was a, uh, a great orator and he mobilized a small group of ec ecological minded people and some some legal people and they were able to ultimately uh, convince the governor to put put pressure on the core and then Nixon actually ultimately intervened and stopped the core stopped their funding so they couldn't move forward with uh, their plans to well they did dredge about 10 miles of the Cache River but after that they had to stop and ultimately they restored that years later I know you said the Big Woods isn't, doesn't exist, but, w boy, it's hard to believe that the same state has the Boston Mountains and the Cache River because it looks far different. 
yeah, it's well, I think there's five different regions of the state. Yeah. But these are these are radically different places, also different culturally. One thing I recognize going down the river, all 700 miles of it, you know, we paddled it for that for that project was that folks that live in NWA don't know much about the Delta normally, and people in the Delta don't know very much about the NWA. The, the Buffalo and the Cache just exist in two different worlds. You don't meet many people that, that traverse, you know, both, both realms. And uh, so that's one thing I think this production does, is that it gives you this, this full riparian soap opera of what happened in the 70s there, while the same sort of thing was happening here, but we know so much about the Buffalo story, and we know we doesn't know so little about the White River and the Cash River and Delta culture in general. But uh, yeah, it's a success story, I think, because you know the right people came together and organized and and stopped something that really shouldn't have been happening. On the other hand, unlike the Buffalo River story, we lost nine million acres of hardwoods and. Yes, there are preserved areas now, and they're trying to expand those, but it, it was a big sacrifice. What's the difference in canoeing something like the buffalo or canoeing the white post-Batesville? Is there a difference? For me, there was, because when I left um, Bull Shoals in the tailwaters, mm -hmm. the dam area, the river runs deep. It's it, They're generating uh, water from the turbines, and it's unpredictable. It's... Uh, it has a lot more hazards for a, a small canoe, especially a wood canoe, which I was using. And I crashed, you know, after about three miles. And I was sort of dragged ashore by this uh, river rat gentleman who ultimately um, helped me. Well, he followed me down the rest of the 400 miles of the river in his bass boat. Wow. And uh, he became a good friend. And he became, well, I'm not going to tell him, but he became a character in the in the episode. So, <laughs> give us an idea of an anecdote that that you developed or or were inspired by that that we'll experience in the in the production. Well, that's one. I crashed my canoe, and I it just because I was vulnerable and I was lost, you know, and I was I needed to be helped and everything. You you I met people who became a part of my life right there, and I went back and interviewed them, and they they introduced me to other people who I interviewed for the story, but. That, that's the, the core, that's the kernel of the story. You have a guy, 23, grad student from California, conscientious objector. You know, he's a hip, classic hippie, but he grew up in Harrison, and so he's got both worlds in him. And he crashes his canoe, and this unsuspecting middle-class traditional Delta couple pulls him ashore. And little do they know, he's going to have all sorts of effects on their, on their family life, on their relationship on their daughter's life. And so that's, that's really, that part of the story which launches the rest is, is autobiographical. Chris Engholm's Big Woods and the Golden Bean will be available July 2nd. There will also be a release party that day at the Fayetteville Public Library. And we're going to hear much more from our conversation on Weekend Ozarks at Large. That's Sunday morning at 9 on 91.3. KUAF. Walmart Amp presents a fireworks spectacular Tuesday, July 4th. This family-friendly experience features a blend of patriotic and contemporary music by the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas with a grand finale fireworks display. Gates open at 7 p.m., concert at 8 p.m., and fireworks begin at 9.15. AmpTickets.com for information. Theater Squared presents Violet, the powerhouse Broadway musical from the Tony Award-winning composer of Fun Home. When Violet hops onto a Greyhound bus traveling across Arkansas towards a miracle in Tulsa, it turns into the journey of a lifetime. On stage through July 2nd, 777-7477 or theater2.org for tickets. This is 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Springdale, and Jane, Missouri. KUAF is listener supported and you can support your public radio station right now at supportkuaf.com. Contributors to the program today included Josie Lenora and Randy Wilburn. Our membership director at KUAF is Brett Ratliff. You make him smile when you become or renew your membership. Today's show was put together inside the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. From the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Anna Pope. I'm Kyle Kelms. Thanks so much for listening. Back with you tomorrow at noon and 7. You can support us at any time at supportkuaf.com. Have you been to Jane, Missouri? No. All right.
we'll, we're going to we're going to do field trips this summer. <laughs> I'm looking forward to All it, right. Kyle. <laughs> All right, very good. Hey, thanks so much for listening, and uh, have a great rest of your Tuesday.